invite the kids to children's church. And I thought I should change it because what it said up until recently, and this is like a nerdy language thing, but it said we dismiss the kids. Um, and part of it, as I was thinking about it this week, I looked at it and I was like, that seems harsh. Um, we dismiss you to go. And so I was like, what if we changed it to we invite the kids in the children's church? Which seems like a minor change, but I think what it tries to say is that, like, let's invite them into a space of learning and growing in God's character that's more appropriate to them, rather than let's dismiss them from the adult space and invite them into some sort of kid space that has nothing to do with what's happening here. What's happening in there is, is the mirror of what's happening here and directing them up in faith and bringing them into new, uh, and new understandings and, and new ways. And so... Well, and if I if you catch me, I was thinking we could have a, a a swear jar for me that if I say the kids are dismissed and you catch me, I'll put a dollar in it and we'll give it to some charity or something like that, or um, spend it on a pack of candy bars for everyone. Colorado donuts for all, if I swear enough. Um, so uh, yeah, Ken, Ken will be watching now. Um, uh, so the kids are invited into children's church now. Um, many of you know that I try to sit with the, the text a lot through the week, and as I've been sitting with Ephesians, I, maybe this has happened to you, although maybe you're not a Bob Dylan fan, but I've been thinking of, of that song all along the watchtower, and it's got that three chords in the truth line, and then it says, let us not speak falsely now, for the hour is getting late. Both of those are keep coming to me as we sort of walk through Ephesians. It's that like, one, three chords in the truth, truth I think in uh, people who look down on contemporary Christian music would say that describes all of them. It's G, C, and D, and man, it's got some truth over and over again. Um, and the the let us not speak falsely now for the hour is getting late, I think seems to capture some of the urgency that Ephesians does, is that, that we should speak truthfully to one another, which showed up in last week's passage and showed up in this week's passage. But what I want to do in today's sermon is sort of, there's there's two tracks. There's one and that is nerdy, that I hope you understand, but if you don't, get the other track, which is on Ephesians. The nerdy track is about this book, which I have here, uh, After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre. This book came out in 1981, um, and it's like a classic text for, um, well, most master's work in philosophy or theology, um, to understand at least the argument um, and to sort of work with it. And so one track for today's sermon will be sort of pairing what we're learning with Ephesians with After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre, which if that doesn't sound nerdy enough, well, you'll like this sermon. Um, and the second track will be sort of going through Ephesians. So my hope is first that I do well enough on the first track that we get the second track paired well enough together and they run on the same track. If you like McIntyre more than Ephesians, after this, I failed greatly. And if you like Ephesians more but didn't get the McIntyre point, well, that's fine. Um, so that's sort of where we're at. But this this book, After Virtue, starts with this idea that, that and some of you have read The Canticle of Leibowitz, which is a bestseller in the, I think, the late 70s, about this apocalyptic world. And what has happened is sort of there's been a, a, a nuclear holocaust. And what they've gathered is sort of like science things in the monastery. They gathered all the science stuff together, but they only have like fragments of like the periodic table and fragments of all these other pieces. And what they do with all that is they like try to reason with science, but they're sort of enabled because they don't quite understand that the natural sciences are this big sort of realm. And so they try to use, like they argue about which is greater, biology or, or chemistry, which of course, if you're like a scientist today, 
you might argue in a pride sense, but you know that both are needful for, for the world. But, but so this post-apocalyptic world, that's what's happening. The short point of, if, if, of that analogy is McIntyre says that we live in that same spot with virtue and vices today. So his sense is that we live after virtue. And so what happens is when we argue about moral action or what we should do, we're essentially just sort of not using all the pieces and puzzles that we should have. That we sort of disconnected it from larger structures of the truth, larger structures of what it means to be a good person, and even the ends, which when we talked about being perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, that there was this, there was this uh, teleological, which is a big word to say, there was this point at which these things were being drawn. So to be an honest person isn't just to be honest in the present, but it had this end goal, to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect isn't just to be perfect in the presence, but it's being drawn towards that sign thing. And so McIntyre is saying we've essentially divorced them from that as well. So that's first segment on Alistair McIntyre today, is, that, is we're talking about, the, one of the things I want us to consider is that perhaps we've lost virtue and the logic by which it's governed in sort of the modern world. So second track, Ephesians. In Ephesians, Paul here is now saying that you have to put off your old ways and put off your old self and put on something new. So if you're a fan of Matt's crummy handwriting, here's what we've seen so far in Ephesians. is that in chapter 2, Paul said that you were dead and now you are alive. That was the contrast that sort of governed chapter 2. In chapter 4, he says that you have this old way of being, you have this old thing, but now you need to put on the new way that comes in Christ. And in chapter 5, he's going to contrast it in the same way with darkness and light. But even within the chapter uh, that we have to, for today, there's all these comparisons going on at the same time. He'll talk about the old human and the new human, the decaying and being renewed. Um, walking like Gentiles versus walking and imitating God and walking in love as Christ. This is, there's a lot on this slide, but if you just look at it for a moment, you can see that what's happening in this chapter of Ephesians is Paul is presenting, there's this old way of being that's governed by these things, and there's this new way of being that comes in Jesus that's governed by something else. And they sort of pair together as you walk through this section of Ephesians. This is what people who study Christianity call sort of the doctrine of two paths. There is, there's this path that leads to life, and there's this path that leads to death. There's this path that is old, um, that you had in your pre-Christian self, and there's this path which you've come to learn in Jesus Christ, which is what Paul says today. This is kind of the tension that we have in this chapter of, of Ephesians. And I think what's amazing about it is so much of the modern world we've talked about really doesn't want to deal with that there are two paths, right? There's a lot of paths. Um, there's lots of different ways to be. And, and the early Christian mindset was like, you can shape yourself up and go on this one, or you can go on this one. But there's only two options. Now, whether they actually held to like that in a conversation, they might be like, well, there's more options of being good, and there's more options of being bad. But they clearly want to draw out a dichotomy of sort of the ways in which you can live your life so that you can move forward. And so looking at the one on the left first is that, that Paul, or the author of Ephesians, is making this argument about what it's like to be a Gentile. They live in ignorance. They have empty minds. They believe the lie. Uh, stealing, rotten language, bitter and angry and wrangling is sort of the characters of Gentile life as he sees it. Now one of the things that happened as I was studying this week is everybody pauses to ask, is this a fair picture of Gentile life in the ancient world? And of course, there are people who lived like this in the ancient world. 
But what most people said in Lyon is what Paul is talking about on this negative side is that they don't have the means to really um, correct this avenue themselves. That if they were to reason harder and think harder, they would only end up further down this road that leads to these things. That they have this sort of path. And so it's almost like that the, the thinking is bad. And even if they're thinking rightly to gain some virtue, then it's sort of like that has its own sort of darkness in it. Now, my dad is here this Sunday, and he had this thing of making us watch old biblical movies. Um, and you're thinking like, oh, that's normal that your dad made you watch the Ten Commandments, uh, which fine. But I watch Barabbas, um, and Barabbas is like, I think, four hours long. Um, at least it felt that way in black and white. And of course, it's the story about Barabbas as he sort of is pardoned from the cross, and he goes and sort of lives his life. And what happens is Barabbas has no idea that like he's supposed to become a Christian. He just goes back to his life of crime, ends up in all these sort of things. And the weird part about Barabbas is that like he can't really die. Um, there's He's working in the salt mines towards the end of the movie, and they're like, how long have you been down here? And he's like, 20 years. And they're like, nobody survives 20 years in the salt mines. And so Barabbas is, is sort of this character, while Jesus is pardoned him, needs to come around full, full circle and stuff. But he ends up in Rome towards the end of the movie. And he's like, I need to become a Christian. Not having the renewed mind yet, he thinks, I need to be a Christian. And what happens is, in, in this movie, is that um, Barabbas then hears that the Christians are burning Rome. And so Barabbas, not yet having the renewed mind, joins in the burning of Rome. Now, as many of you know, that this, what Nero blamed on the Christians, if you've ever heard Nero fiddled while Rome burned, Nero took this burning of Rome and blamed it on the Christians, but there's really no evidence that the Christians burned Rome. The craziest part about the movie is they catch Barabbas while he's burning it as a Christian, and so he's their evidence that the Christians burned Rome, um, which I think we should all take as fact now. Um, but what happens then is he finally in jail again realizes what he needs to do to become a Christian. The reason why I told that story is because this is sort of that example of like, well, the Christians must be burning Rome, so I too will be burning Rome. Shows how like even in that darkened mindset, it's hard to process towards virtue. It's hard to process to what it means. So perhaps this instant reaction of I need to be a Christian, what are the Christians doing? Burning Rome? Great, I'm in is sort of the way Paul thinks that the Gentile logic would work out if they had to do it on themselves. That they have to sort of be planted and renewed in Christ. They need to have a whole new thing come into being for them. That's sort of Paul's logic on what's happening in the world here. And so one of the things I was thinking about is that how do we, we place that within the notion of a modern world? Which brings us to McIntyre sort of chapter 2 as we go through it, not chapter 2 in the book. Um, is McIntyre views sort of the problem of the modern world, what he calls as a motivism. Now, motivism seems like a big word, but I'm guessing you can probably figure out what it means. It means sort of being governed by your emotions, right? It's sort of like the main sort of moral logic of the modern world is our emotional state. And so for McIntyre, what he says is that this ends up with most statements believing that, like, I prefer this, most statements of, I think we should do this, or I think we shouldn't do this, this should be outlawed, and this shouldn't be outlawed, this is how we should order society, are actually just preferential statements. They're not grounded in anything other than, I feel like this is right, and I feel like this is wrong. That, like, they don't have any greater pull outside themselves. If you were to sit down, and maybe you've had this happen, I'm sure it's happened to some of you, it's happened to me often in the modern world, is if you sit down and sort of logic out with somebody, 
how do you want to organize society or live life or why did you make that moral decision you almost hit an impasse often a lot where there's like no bridge you can cross because it's like because i prefer that than the other one um and so why do you prefer that more than the other one well because i do um, and this is where sort of moral reasoning breaks down in the modern world. My point of telling you this is to compare it to what the, the author Paul is talking about in Ephesians of what's happening to the Gentile mind, is that for us as Christians in 21st century North America, I think it's true that we too often are governed by emotivism as well. But what Paul is saying is when you put on this new thing, is it's not just emotivism, it's moving into a whole new way of life, it's transforming your way of being, it's becoming something else. And so for Christians, this is having something outside yourself that sets the plumb line or direction or goal so that you can appeal to that. Our moral status in the world shouldn't be just that I prefer this to that. Our moral status in the world should go deeper and wider than that. And so this is the term that McIntyre uses for that is motivism. And I hope that we can see how that's true in our pre-Christian state and unfortunately is often true in our post-Christian state in the modern world. That we still are governed by primarily this emotional thing. But I think that's one of the ways in which the Gentile imagination or the pre-Christian imagination in, in Paul's logic is darkened. And so if I were to reason to a better place with emotivism, it might look a little bit better, but really it's just becoming more and more as me judging, saying, I prefer this, boo that idea, Yay, this idea is sort of the summary of emotivism, is that you just cheer for one idea and you cheer against another idea, but it's not attached to much else more than that. And so that's sort of maybe how this sort of logic plays out in the modern world, is this Gentile logic of sort of doing that. But for, but for Paul, there's the struggle is that he wants you to take off what is old. He wants you to take off what is old and put on what is new. And so Brian asked why my shirt is up here. When I had thought about it beforehand, I thought it would be a good illustration to change shirts, but I'm not going to do that because it seems like it'd be hard to preach and change my shirt. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what it seems like, so I'm not going to do it. Um, but what, what Paul is almost talking about is like taking off your old clothes and putting on something else that's new. Now, Chris and I were talking about this before church, is that, you know, I was, I was joking that, well, I'm not going to get naked like the early Christians did baptism. But that is some of the evidence of what the early Christians did, is you would fully disrobe, and you would go into the water to receive your baptism. And then on the other side of the water, they would give you a new set of clothes, clearly picking up this old and new theme from the book of Ephesians. And what Chris and I were talking about that, she was like, they take that symbolism very seriously. And as we were talking about it, it became clear to us that it's like, it's actually sort of beyond symbolism, right? They actually took it seriously as if you were going to transform through that. And so the modern analogy that Chris and I came up with for this is it would almost be like saying, like, through entering the waters of baptism, your, your DNA has been altered to bring you into this new state and this new place. It's not as simple as just taking off a shirt and putting a new one on and then say, oh, I'm going to wear my old shirt today and then I'm going to wear this shirt today. And this is why Paul has sent so much of the early part of the letter telling you who you are in Christ so you know you don't go back. You may fail to live up to that, but you don't take off your new clothes. And so he's telling them you put on this new thing. You take off, in, in one instance, you take off the lie and you put on the truth. And this is 
This is Paul's way of sort of moving the Christians through that mindset. Is that, that this is what happens in the world, is that you move through this. And he uses this phrase that you learned Christ. You learned in Christ. And, the, and the, your translations may have something different, but the Greek is very much you learned Jesus. And this is a, people, people debated it often, but one of the things that, that may not be obvious to, to many of us is that Paul and the church in Ephesus didn't have the first four books of the New Testament we call the Gospels. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, funny enough, they may have had Mark, if, if Paul came with them with Mark, but they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so what does Paul mean when you learned Christ? There's a couple things that most, most scholars sort of land on. Is that first is that the, the church has already come up with this ways of sort of giving you um, what it means to act like a it gives you this sort of moral training right off the bat. I mean, first, number one would be like, stop going to the temple and offering sacrifices. Uh, second would be sort of this idea of, of um, uh, offering your life to Jesus now. And, and one of the things that, that sort of connects to the final McIntyre point is that early Christians are doing something weird in the ancient world, building these communities sort of parallel alongside of it, of, of the ancient world that they see as bankrupt in life. They're building this whole other sphere of being. And what happens is, and we see this in, in the story from Ephesus and Acts, is that while they are not threatening physically or destroying the ancient world, they're not destroying the temple to Artemis that's in Ephesus, by virtue of this many people becoming Christians, they stop buying shrines. And so this guy, um, I can't remember his name, uh, Demetrius, yeah. Demetrius is this little shrine maker in Ephesus, and when these people are becoming Christians, he says, hey, look, guys, first, our trade is not going to do well if this Christian movement keeps growing. And the second is, this would be a bad sign for, for um, uh, Dina, is one way of saying her name, that our God who governs the city, if her honor falls, we fall as well. And so he gathers up everybody to sort of go and protest this. But this is what it meant to become a Christian in the modern world to put on a different and have a way of being. But there's no evidence that they set out to destroy Dina, but it was so much so that there are evidence that they were moving towards the worship of the one true God, which is the way that much of the ancient world would characterize Jews. Well, they, 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 they have the worship of the one true God in their phrase, but we think it's weird. Um, and they never gain traction from that. But what happens in the early Christian movement is that that message becomes that all people can join into this worship of the one true God. And not only that, through their building of this different type of world, following Paul, they begin to grow with slaves and marginalized groups and women. Their marriages and their households begin to set up differently. And so that's what moves into the second part of today's reading, which, funny enough, has a lot to do with words. Uh, the last thing I'm going to say about learning Christ is there's this notion to the Greek that you're actually learning with Jesus through prayer and participation. That Christ is real to you as a teacher, as you became a Christian without the Gospels and without um, full sort of somebody talking to you all the time, that Jesus was actually your teacher. That was happening, Paul sees in their imaginations. Is Christ is literally teaching you through your prayer life and through your connection to the body of believers, which is one of the critical parts of Ephesians we've been trying to hit. Is so many of these things are about ordering a common life together. And one of the more critical things to ordering a common life together is is care of words. 
started the sermon with, with some care of words. You're invited to kiss church. You're not dismissed. And so he starts first with this idea that you will care for your words differently with this new way of life that you've learned about, that you won't um, uh, speak in falsehood, but you'll speak truthfully to your neighbor. In anger, you won't live in, and that you'll stop stealing. And for Paul, these four things are sort of three things are connected, that you would put off the lie, that you would put off falsehood, that you would put off anger, which would, is a little bit more complex than that, and that you would put off... Um, Stealing, yes. First off is that these things are obviously written to the Christian community, which it raises the question of why are they stealing amongst themselves, which is one of the problems that Paul is talking about. But the first thing I'm putting off falsehood is, last week we talked about speaking the truth in love to one another, or truthing in love is sort of the way it is. And I, I missed this, this line that I think is critical, is that we've, we've heard that we're to speak the truth in love to one another, and what we've taken is that we're not to speak the truth at all. Because we have this mindset that it's like it's very hard to speak the truth in love, so let's just not risk it. Um, let's just not even try. And what happens is, is, is for Paul, it's very important for the community of the faith to have this relationship to speaking to one another truthfully about what's going on. And he says, for the reason, because we're all members of one each other. His body, his, his earlier metaphor for what's happening amongst them is that they're making up the body of Christ, and, and Christ is the head of that. And so he's saying that you have to learn to speak truthfully to one another because we are all members of this body together. And to, to, to not speak truthfully to others would sort of denigrate your culture together. Your common life together will go worse and worse the less that you're capable of speaking truth to one another. And so he tells them first to speak this truth to one another in contrast to the lie. The second is that he uh, tells them to not live in anger anymore. And this is this one I found interesting for one reason, or for a couple of reasons, but first it's, it's don't let the sun set on your anger because that gives the devil a foothold. Now, if you're somebody who's read the Bible a lot, there's this early story of Cain and Abel where the first murder happens. And before the Cain murders Abel, he, God asks him, you know, if you keep walking around like this, you'll give the devil a foothold in your life to sort of do this. And so, you know, the, the downside of anger is murder. Um, which isn't, you know, it's a pretty big downside. Um, the downside of anger is murder. But it doesn't say no anger is allowed. It says that you need to find a way to deal with it before the sun sets. Now, one of the things I was thinking about in this in contemporary world is our modern political sphere is incredibly angry. It almost like lives on permanent anger highs. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's the other side. No, it's your side too. And if you're thinking, no, that's just them. It's your, it's, we could find examples on both sides of this divide that are just peaking off of anger. And it's so much so that they don't let the sun set on their anger, which is why it has this invitation to sin and to disform. So it becomes so much that the, the people who voted another way aren't just people who voted another way, but that they're idiots. Um, how could anybody do that? They're just so dumb. Um, it becomes so much that, that you begin to disassociate. This is around the time where you'll read like 40 articles about your self-care during Thanksgiving. Like it's that hard not to talk about politics for four hours with your family so that you end up in a fight, which I get, you know, a real struggle. But like, come on, it's Thanksgiving, there's football on, there's better things to do. Talk about how the turkeys burn. Um, like it's so ramped up in our society, this anger and this angst that we can't even sit and eat together for four hours with our family. Like 
let's think about that if these people aren't our family and you disagree with them. That anger just gets higher and higher. And so what Paul says to the Christian community, look, if you do get angry, find a way to settle it before you go to bed. Don't let anger live in your house. If you're going to put on a new shirt, if you're going to put on a new identity, if your DNA is going to change, know that it expels anger. It may be that you need to go and talk to the person in anger. It may be the driving is another one, by the way. Like We just like have ramped up rage that we can unleash at any time when we're driving. Um, I have some confession. Um, but um, but like we have, like you may need to talk to somebody. You may need to let it go, which is, of course, an option that nobody actually thinks is an option. Um, you may need to talk to somebody. You may need to let it go. You may need to, to throw your cares upon God. You may need to ask that God can heal that anger in your life. But all this to say is that anger is something that sort of gets pushed out of this body, and that's not something we hear, hopefully, lightly. It's this, this ways in which we have to settle anger. And the last one is, is stealing. And to tell Christians not to steal from one another seems like, I guess today, a duh sort of mindset. But what happened in the ancient world is that lots of business was done in ways in which you could cheat. You could set things on the scale. You could break your spice scale so that weighed a little bit heavier or lighter and you charge more. You had this way of sort of doing business in a way that was, was what we would call corrupt. They would call, um, I'm from Illinois, so with Illinois politics, we call that how things get done. But it's obviously corrupt. Um, and so what happens is he's telling them that if, within your community and as you witness towards the modern world, you're going to have to cease those practices of taking a little bit more. You're going to have to cease those practices of weighting your scales or, or sort of um, taking things away or destroying things. You're going to have to find a new way to being in this. And what he says even is that if you are stealing and not doing anything, do something with your hands so that you can give that to the needy. Paul's advice to the Ephesians is that if you're so um, un, unemployed or unsomething that you are not able to sort of provide, um, and so you steal, is to stop doing that. And to do something with your hands so that you can provide for those outside. And one of these things I like about this is to do something with your hands provides this idea of that, like, work with material, touch things, be active with things so that you are drawn into something else. And it's not, it's not, there are some Christian movements, not ours, and I don't think it's been true here, but that sort of view work as the enemy. And what Paul says is that work is good is that if you can find a way to work with your hands, then you might be able to provide for the poor in your midst. And that that's a good thing, rather than just sitting there and not doing anything. And so he continues to say that, that let no unwholesome talk come from your mouth. This is a... We know what that is. First off, uh, I made a joke about a swear jar, but not about swearing. But we also don't know what it means because what Paul is saying is that the world is listening to your conversations together. And so when you talk about somebody else, a fellow believer, something else, does it lift up the broom? Is it gossip? Is it meant to tear down? Is it meant to just sort of destroy? Or does it lift up the people around you? Not a professor in seminary who I think was legitimately a little bit nuts, but he would find that if they were talking too much about somebody who wasn't in the room, he said, why don't we just call them? 
why don't we just call them and invite them into this? Because we seem to have lots of advice about what they should be doing with their life right now. And maybe we should call them and talk it through. And occasionally, people would actually do that. They would go, that's a good idea because we have determinatively figured out what their problem is within our three people. And it might be wise for them to gain this advice. Now, if you're like me, I have this, and I say it's for, for sermon research, of listening to other people's conversations when I'm out. And it's not hard to see how other people talk about people when they're not in the room. It's not hard to see how unwholesome talk sort of bleeds. If you go to Starbucks after high school gets out, the language that they use for people who aren't in the room is just horrible. But you see it in Christian circles, it's just meant to be nicer. Well, if they could just figure this out, if they could just do that. We're very full of advice for one another. So what Paul is advising here is in your community of language and word care together. It's time to end sort of talking about that, unless it's building up to meet each other's needs. It's building up something in their lives. And for we are to follow Christ's example. And he ends after this passage. It's, there's two more insights I sort of want to get to and then close with McIntyre sort of chapter 3. The first is that we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. This is a powerful passage at this moment, as he says that do all this so that you don't grieve the Spirit of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't often think it's my inability to live up to what Christ has called me to as something that which grieves God. But what Paul is saying here is the Spirit has been this moment of adoption, as he says early in the letters, that which calls us further into life. Our inability to, to be truthful with one another, to put away slander and and gossip, to, to stop stealing, is something that actually grieves the heart of God. It grieves God's spirit here in the world. That reality, I think, is, is something worth naming, is that, is that there's this grief that comes along with this. As, as much as sometimes we think of our God as impersonal and unaffected by what we do, God's purposes will continue to go on despite this. There's this moment where grief enters into the picture of the Trinitarian life together. Our inability to function in these ways will grieve God. It'll make God sad is almost one way to translate it. And it's almost like this, this parenthood analogy that Paul keeps using is that it's a parent that grieves because you're not living up to this. You're not moving into this moment. But what he says is instead of that, to be kind and compassionate to one or forgiving each other just as, just <clears throat> as Christ forgave you. What I love about this passage, first off, is that it tells you that you are going to, your community, our community here, will need to learn to forgive each other if we're going to do this walk into holiness and grow in maturity. There will be bumps and stumbles along the way. And it's a call to imitate God as God forgives you. This is this imitation of God in which we're called into in our lives. Now, one of my favorite parts about uh, this passage is it reminds me of when I was interviewing for churches. People used to say, well, what's your conflict management style? And I was like, I say I'm sorry. Um, we pray the Lord's Prayer together, which says that I'm responsible for giving you as much as you're responsible for giving me. And if we don't do that, God might not forgive us, which I don't think is. We talk about whether that's a real threat, but that's certainly within the Gospels, that, you know, that we need to accept that there's bumps along the way. And I'll offend you, and you'll offend me, and our lives will be together. I mean, it's a guarantee I'll offend you. You might offend me, but, but that will move in our lives together in this holiness way. Because what happens when we do that, when we forgive each other, we gain this ability to imitate God together, which is really the point. 
To forgive and to let go actually makes the community that is much stronger because you're practicing the ways in which this is bumping along the road. And I think that there's this, there's this hesitancy in the book of Ephesians that if you're really to take all these moral instructions seriously, you would say, well, when it breaks, what do you do? When it breaks, you imitate God and forgive each other. And then when he says, is there, follow God's example and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved you, giving yourself up as a fragrant offering um, or right before that, be kind and compassionate to one another. Kind is such a weak word for us, but kind is one of the words that Paul used for what God did in bringing us back from dead to life in Ephesians. That being kind to one another is to act as if God was bringing you back from death to life. The process of restoring a lost brother or a lost family member is that type of kindness that's stalling back here. The kindness of restoring somebody to a church who's gone awry is supposed to be like that movement from death back to life. If you're familiar with the prodigal son story too, that means slaughter the fattened calf and have a party because this person who was once lost has come back. That's the notion of what we're supposed to be celebrating here is that, that this kindness is to model God. And then compassion makes us these people who feel for the world. There's this popular phrase that says, I feel for you. It's often said when we don't mean it. It's a way to end the conversation. But the Greek word for compassion has this like gut motion to it. You see something happen to one of your friends or people, and you're disgusted by it, and you feel that in here. And it makes you somebody who feels for the community around you. And I was thinking about this. It was it's, it's sad, but in my life, the most Popular examples of this that stand out the most are in relationship to animals. And I say that's sad because, like, they have their own messed up ways of being in the world. We just never see it. We normally see it when they're cute, but we don't see them, like, eat each other, beat on each other, abandon their young, blah, blah, blah. We just see them. And so it's easier to feel compassion for something that you think is innocent, um, to feel that gut thing. And I think what Paul would say to that is, like, okay, like animals, the people that God has surrounded you with, have their own interior life, and if you knew, you would feel for them the way that God feels for them. And so I took that as a challenge for myself, to begin to see people and to say, like, I should feel something for them, but I don't. But if it were a dog that was sick like this, I might. And to really challenge myself to stretch my capacity beyond thinking that this is innocent suffering or something like that, but to feel the connection that God and Christ has made in us as we are members of one another, to have that sort of gut feeling for this. This is the call of the Christian life. This brings us back to McIntyre, the end of the book. It's on the back of the bulletin, the quote. Uh, it's a long quote, and I'll do my best to make it short and describe what's happening. What I've been trying to say is that the call to Ephesians is a call to build a church community, a life within the shell of the modern world that's bent towards death, so that we can find life. So if the world is governed by a modernism, or slander, or greed, or lies, or unhinged sexuality, or lack of care for words. It's the goal of the Christians not to change the world, but to live as the organ within it that's healthy and alive. And so one of the challenges for us, as I've said, and that's a controversial statement, to say that we need to turn to our own interior life so that we can offer to the world what they need. See, what happened in the church is we've been offering people what, what we don't have ourselves. And so the challenge for the church today, I think, is to make those things in ourselves so that we can offer to the world. If you've ever been on an airplane where they say, put on your oxygen mask first before.
before you put on a child. So if McIntyre is right, and that's what this quote is about, is that we live in a time where everything seems to be falling apart, perhaps it's time to build communities where we put our oxygen masks on first so that we can be assistance to the world. Because the logic when you're on the flight is you don't put your oxygen mask on first, you both might die, which is the challenge. And so this quote, as he says, is it's always too dangerous to draw two precise parallels between one historical period and another, and among the most leading of which is the parallels drawn between our own age in Europe and North America and the epoch in which the Roman Empire declined into the Dark Ages. Nonetheless, certain parallels there are. A crucial turning point in that early history occurred when men and women of goodwill turned aside from the task of shoring up the Roman Imperium which is the government and the life. They, they turned aside from the task of shoring up all of that was being rolled together and ceased to identify with the continuation of that project and moral community with the maintenance of that. They just saw that everything here is so broken. And what they set themselves to achieve instead, often not fully recognizing what they were doing, was the construction of new forms of community with which in the moral life could be sustained so that the morality and civility might survive the coming barbarians and darkness. This is what he says is happening here. There's a second slide. Um, but they set up to build communities that could withstand this temptation in the modern world. This next slide, I think it's important to say that McIntyre wasn't a Christian when he wrote this book in 1981. So um, when you see like morals and you're like, Christians should have a more robust understanding of that, you're right. McIntyre wasn't a Christian when he wrote this book. But because of this book, he said it would make sense to become a Christian, and he joined the Catholic Church sometimes afterward it wasn't published. So if my account of the moral condition is correct, we ought to also conclude for some time now we have reached that turning point. What matters at this stage is the construction of local forms of community within which civility and intellectual and moral life can be sustained through the new dark ages which are already upon us. And if the tradition of the virtues which is what Paul is naming here and will continue to name, was able to survive the horrors of the last dark ages, we are not entirely without grounds for hope. This time, however, the barbarians are not waiting beyond the frontiers. They have already been governing us for quite some time. I think it's supposed to make you laugh. And it is not our lack of consciousness of it that constitutes part of our predicament. We are not waiting uh, for Godot, but another very doubtless St. Benedict. St. Benedict is the one who was active at the turn of the last Dark Ages. But my, my point today is what we are waiting is a doubtlessly very different Paul or community like the church in Ephesus. One that's willing to take on the task of being the lungs in the world in which so that it can heal the world. That's willing to build a common life of virtue and of care for one another so that they can survive this coming age which seems difficult and dark and overwhelming. As I was revisiting the book this morning, there's a line that said, if, if he's right in the front, pessimism is not going to be a luxury that's afforded to us anymore either. Which hurts for me because I love my pessimism. Reminds me of Cornel West who said that, that is, is he an optimist or a pessimist? He said that I'm a prisoner of hope. So what does it mean for us as a community to see this in the world, to see that we're called to something else, and to acknowledge that we're called to be prisoners of hope, to build this place here that can move forward. Let us pray.
God, you have brought us from death to life. You've trained us to see what is old so that we can put on what is new. You've moved us from darkness to light. God, through this hearing of your word and as we continue in Ephesians, let us hear of the life in which we've been called to. You who are rich in mercy, God, didn't leave us to just sit there in the gutter, but you've enabled us to clothe us in new things, new ways to speak to one another, new ways to keep our hands busy, new ways to give, new ways to talk about those who live in our community together. Most of all, you've called us into imitating the God whom we love and serve, to be holy as, they, as God is holy. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.